0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Security Sandbox. I'm Amanda Pinnell, Chief Security Officer at Relativity, where we help the legal and compliance world solve complex data problems securely. And that takes a lot of creativity. One of the best things about a sandbox is that you can try anything. This season, let's explore how curiosity and personal passions inspire stronger security. Grab your shovel and let's dig in. In today's episode, we'll be transforming our sandbox into an archaeological site. We'll excavate a series of tools and terminology to put a fresh perspective on digital forensics and maybe discover some buried treasure along the way. Joining us from across the pond is Dr. Allison Sheridan voted the 2020 Archaeologist of the Year, this literal rock star, specializes in the Neolithic, Calcolithic, and early Bronze Ages of Britain and Ireland. We also have Ivan Found, Relativity Security Team's Incident Response Manager. He brings the cyber perspective to our excavation. Today's episode was really the catalyst for this entire series, and I'm so excited about it. This was what I really sat down and first thought of whenever I said, what can I meld together of my personal passions? Archaeology was my first true love and what I got my undergrad, undergraduate degree in, moved into my master's doing digital investigations. And yet, I still do the same thing. I'm really actually still digging to find things out about people. So, Allison, I'm so glad you joined us today. We're going to jump right into one of the most important topics in archaeology how we approach the dig and this three step process. There are three phases. I think phase one is identification for both of us. This is where we come together, but maybe we're a little different on phase two.
1: Oh, well, I I mean, phase two is definitely the forensic type work. And then phase three is the sort of dissemination and presentation, because that is a very, very important element. You know, it's it's great fun to get to do this research, but if you don't then let the whole world know about it. So I would say
0: dissemination is phase three. Alison, that's a great point. But Ivan, this probably sounds a little familiar to you, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a lot of um, overlays and overlaps, right? I mean, in terms of identification, forensic analysis, uh, and dissemination, in terms of similar in cyber digital forensics, right, you're going through uh, identification triage, right, you're doing the forensic analysis, and you're putting together a digital forensic report, after action report of next steps, right? So there is there's definitely the the similarities whether you're you know excavating a site or you're um, going through a registry uh, uh, on a server or a workstation there's very there's a lot of similarities in terms of the forensic process and um, artifacts that you're looking for things that point you to bigger finds as you're going through the, the forensic analysis process so this is a uh, you know from someone coming in from the cyber world, the digital forensic world, seeing so many overlays it's like oh this you could you know, swap. And it's it's the same thing. It's the same processes. So that's that's really great to hear.
0: Ivan, one question I think every cyber investigator has to ask themselves is where to dig. I mean, I, archaeologists ask this too. We'll ask Allison. But really, this is a question for you on where do you know where to look? How, how do you decide?
2: The, the security um, culture, you know, in and, and digital forensics, a lot of it is based on threat intelligence that you have prior hand. Right? I mean, there's there's always, whether you're, uh, I would consider like a new site, for example, be a new threat actor or a new piece of malware, right? And you have, you know, cyber threat intelligence that gives you kind of, here's what you should, uh, indicators that you should look for to kind of begin to start excavating for, for, for the malware.
0: Allison, it doesn't feel super far off from where you are in archaeology. You have the same questions. How are you going to decide where you're going to do a dig? That's absolutely right. And in fact, uh, what we do is predictive modeling.
1: So if we want to try and work out where it's likely, where you're likely to find a Neolithic settlement, you take the pattern of, you know, where have all of the known Neolithic settlements been found, but you also have to be a bit, a bit smart, not half as smart as you guys. And I take my hat off to you um, and, and say, there is, there is also, there's a danger that of, um, if you just look in the places where you know these sites have been found in the past, then sure, you're going to find some new sites, but you're never going to expand your horizons. So you also have to be able to think in a little bit of an agile way and take advantage of chances as they come up. And this is where development funded archaeology is so very useful because that's driven by if somebody's putting in a road then that road has a specific trajectory and they're just going to excavate everything in the course of that road. And you'll find quite often surprises. Yeah. Different new kinds of sites that you'd never heard of or sites in places, kinds of places that you wouldn't have expected. Very much so. So, so that's very helpful. It's to do with pattern recognition and, and being smarter than, than your foe.
2: I mean, I mean, to your point, there's predictive modeling, right? There's similarly from a digital forensic standpoint, you, There's IOCs, indicators of compromise that you use, but you also follow TTPs, right? So tactics, techniques, and procedures that the adversary likes to use. Again, it's not, you know, the adversary is learning as well. We're learning as well. So it's a constant evolution of the battle.
0: Well, just like any battle, you're going to have to take a tool in with you, you know, something to arm yourself with. That's really a great question. What are the tools that you're going to use for this investigation?
1: well we've, we're very lucky because archaeology is is kind of networked into a whole family of hard science sciences yeah so mm-hmm. we would get the DNA specialist to do the DNA analysis the isotope specialist to do that and you know and a whole whole army of other specialisms and the trick for the curator is I'm not a scientist. (laughs) I don't understand. I couldn't explain to you DNA beyond a kind of a a, a nonsense level. But you have to learn just about enough to understand what these guys are are, are saying to you Mm -hmm. and to be able to argue your corner with them. And the most important lesson that everybody's learned is that you have to respect each other's points of view and try to understand each other's points of view and and what what they're actually saying. and that way you, you get to advance because otherwise there have been examples where, say, geneticists don't know anything about the archaeology and they'll come up with something and the archaeologists will say, oh, that's just nonsense, you know, and vice versa. And 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 we just have to try and understand each
0: other and, and move on that way. Ivan, I know you get asked this probably pretty often, but, you know, when people hear cyber, they get excited. It's a cool term. What is your most interesting find when you look back on your years of investigation, something that really just stands out to you?
2: Most interesting finds. I mean, I got a couple of stories, but i'll I'll pick the one that uh, you're familiar with. Um, you know previous previous company that we're at. Um, there was a, there was a case where I was looking for a piece of malware just across the network, um, come across you know come across this individual in Germany that had been you know, under you know work works in a laptop visiting, um, you know, these, these sites. And, you know, I remember um, even just like the circumstances around that, especially with German privacy laws and and all that fun stuff. uh, I remember Amanda coming to me and go, how did this come about again? Just because it was just like, I was like, no, no, no. I was looking for malware.
0: Ivan, I remember that Exactly that moment whenever that first came into my my email and it was like we found something through the logs and I remember having a moment of saying panicky, like, oh my gosh, privacy, this is a big concern. Where did you get this? But it's funny because you kind of look back and I think that was probably the time that you really stood out to me as a great investigator because you were just playing around looking for just mm, anomalies, I think. And you were looking for something that just kind of seemed different than the norm. I love that you found this. And it was a really great investigation that went through all these processes we've been talking about. We identified something, we evaluated it, and then we had to do that data recovery to really understand what was going on and rebuild that timeline. Allison, when you look back, it's probably not finding some logs for some suspicious activity. Is there something that maybe jumps out to you in your career that you're like, this was a great find?
1: Yes. I mean, it's very hard to sort of single it down. Um, uh, As part of a road scheme, people excavated a couple of early Bronze Age graves, and these produced beautiful necklaces made of jet from Whitby in Yorkshire, which are quite a long way away. And it's a little bit like a 3D jigsaw because as the body had decomposed within the grave, then obviously the the necklace will have collapsed and the organic thread will have broken, will have decomposed pretty quickly. So the excavators recorded in situ; they took lots of photographs and everything. But it was then down to me to work out which bits belonged. And it was not just a necklace; there was a bracelet in with one of them. And so again, you have to do this forensic thing. You, you you use your prior knowledge of the finished shape of these necklaces, yeah, because they they made them according to a kind of a, a formula, and you are then able to match up. Hey, that bead must go there because it it fits precisely. So it's a little bit like you going into your logs and then ah. You know, you think, yeah, that belongs there. And the, the satisfaction of then restringing them and taking that photograph and, again, showing it to the people who excavated it, the sort of kind of tears of joy situation is, is
0: great. Well, so I guess, is the resolution your favorite time and part of archaeology or is is there curation? Is there just another moment in particular that you love the phase? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots to enjoy about
1: every part of the stage but i think the first happy point is when you have worked out your narrative because we, what we did we, we we actually did a whole series of galleries about prehistoric scotland and we started literally with blank sheets of paper and we were told what story are you going to tell with these artifacts and these remains and how are you going to tell it and uh, and then thereafter you know obsessively going down to see oh you know who's looking at it and are they enjoying themselves and and then Taking tours around, that, I really enjoyed that with students. So we're able to show them the oldest bow in Britain and Ireland and tell all the little, the kind of stories that you don't get told when you're on the official tours of the museum, the behind-the-scenes type stories. I enjoy telling those.
2: If, if I could quickly follow up, is there an emotional story that you want someone as they're going through to to, to like to get as they walk away from the exhibit? We try and share the love because to
1: us, this stuff is absolutely fascinating and it's Quite it's a big challenge to convey what you want just using artifacts and a very small number of words, because obviously you don't want you're not, you're not putting a book on the wall. You know people don't have that kind of patience, Correct. and so it's it's a bit like um, uh, a haiku
0: poem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's interesting because objective you just want to stick with the facts, and subjective you have some kind of emotion involved. It was an area I always struggled with, with archaeology and cultural anthropology. There's some people who just report the facts and just the data. And there's some people who do have some kind of an interpretation that takes place. And it's, um, it's, it's what separates a lot of different people in anthropology, which one you are. Are you trying to put some kind of feeling involved? Are you trying to extrapolate what happens? My undergraduate
1: degree was joint archaeology and anthropology at the University of Cambridge.
0: And um,
1: yes, as archaeologists, we're trying to get as close as we can to what made people tick. So get to their belief systems and their, their norms and their practices. And of course, it's far harder to do this when all you have is physical remains and, and artifacts. So that for an anthropologist, you can, you can go and visit people. And OK, you, you, you might get what they wish to tell you. So you might not get a, a completely accurate sense of how they live, but at least you're able to you know, talk to people and ask them. Whereas with archaeology, it's a much more challenging thing. So again, it's back to this pattern recognition. And, uh, and, and one example is um, fantastic jade axe heads or jaded axe heads from the Alps which have been found all over europe and people did really weird things to them and with them so for example they might deliberately break them or burn them or both and then they would deposit them somewhere special and we think this is and if and the way to crack this to understand their belief system is to say okay where did the rock come from it came from the highest mountains in europe yeah you have to go right the way up and make this really dangerous journey to find this amazing green material you know how you, you have to know how to extract it how to work it and by doing ethnoarchaeology, the, the, there's this, this wonderful couple, the, the Petricans, who had worked for 25 years in New Guinea with the people, the last people to make stone axe heads. And they said, yes, of course we go up to the highest mountain because that's where the gods live and the ancestors live. So the rock from there is divine. It's a living substance in its own right. And you have to treat it with great respect. And you're thinking, hey, so so ethnoarchaeology and drawing a- analogies and doing it, in a skillful way, that is the relationship between archaeology and
2: anthropology. Wow. Oh, fact, I mean, is it, I guess, do you often find yourself doing forensic on a culture, right, to help you better understand um, the artifacts that you're going to find? Is that, did you say that's accurate?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, the whole concept of a culture is something which is hotly disputed because what you can do is to describe sets of objects that look the same. And you can call that a culture. But would that necessarily correspond to people's, you know, a, a, an ethnic identity? a racial identity a cultural identity a linguistic identity and and actually you know the act, actuality is it's a heck of a lot more complicated than that and archaeologists in the past have made this mistake of saying okay these pots look similar so therefore we can talk about the beaker people you know and and other archaeologists have said pots are not people um, but ironically with the beaker people people are, having done the dna and the forensics now we're able to say well Actually, the people who use these specific pots were probably immigrants from the continent. And 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 on we
0: go. Ivan, uh, do you use subjective thinking in your reports? Do you put some feeling in there?
2: No, no. You want to remove as much uh, <laughs> objectivity from the report as possible. It has to be very timeline-driven. This occurred here, right? And, and you know, very. Cut and dry to the bone. You know, as you, you mentioned, talk, trying to bring emotion for the for an exhibit, I was removing all emotion out of the report. <laughs> it's not like walking through one of your wonderful exhibits and going, "Wow, that that piece really moved me." Right? It's total <laughs> opposite. Total opposite.
1: So, so you're not allowed to write, "Hot dang, that hacker
0: was
2: good." <laughs> I don't think Amanda would allow me to.
0: <laughs> oh.
2: No
0: no no. <laughs> no but that it's true. I don't want you to write your feelings in the report. But we do acknowledge whenever somebody is a good hacker. Like we do talk about this. We say amongst each other, like, wow, that was that was pretty good how they got in there. So it's super true. It's there. We just don't put it in the report. Do you
1: ever meet the hackers? And and what happens to them? Do they get um prosecuted or something?
2: It's hard to ever truly attribute a piece of malware, truly attribute an attack, right? So a specific, um, you know, individual or group, right? I mean, you, you you try, again, using those TTPs and IOCs to do so, but, you know, as the war gets more connected, it's becoming harder and harder every day. And I think what's so funny is that, that we, you're talking in terms of, of
1: enemies and we're thinking in terms of the people in the past are our friends, although actually you know, they did a pretty good job of, of killing each other sometimes. You know, we find things like arrowheads buried in people's backs. And, 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 and would they actually have liked, you know, if I could go back into the past, they would probably say, who are you and why are you asking all these questions about us? I mean, it's wonderful to hear. It's the joy of finding things out and the joy of suddenly realizing "Ah, that's it that I think unites us very much.
0: Alison, it's the perfect segue of those three things I want to look back on. I always do things in threes. People know this. Uh, but that first one being the aha moment, it's so true. It's it's almost visceral that I have the same experience in an investigation today that we had on an archaeology site 20 years ago. It's the aha. I found something of importance here. And it's going to tell that story That's definitely the first thing I think people should walk away today with. The second one is probably tools, process, and people. You know, this is something that I think we have much more similarity than people realize. We use very similar tools. We use similar processes, this threat modeling we talked about. And people have to have the passion to look for things here in both of our fields. And I think that that's tools, process, people. That's the second one. The last one, you you discussed this and I love it. This finding things unexpectedly. That was such a cool idea of like, you know, when you do all the threat modeling, you think you're going to find something. And in cyber, we do this and we think we know where something might be, where there's smoke, there's fire. But at the end, it's really about finding the unexpected in moments when you least expect it. I love it. I think that's what we want to make sure people walk away and think about with their own program. What are you not finding because you haven't looked a little further? finding things unexpectedly. That'll be the theme for today, right? So it's awesome. Let's end on my quote. I always love to. This one's not some famous, famous one, but I do think it captures the energy of both of these fields together. The greatest discoveries all start with the question, why? That might be a cyber investigation. It might be some malware that you have to find on a machine. And it might be the beads to a necklace that you found in Calcolithic, Scotland. But in the end, it's where it all starts. Why? Allison, you lived exactly up to my expectations. Thank you so much for doing this. And Ivan, it's always a pleasure to get to hang out with you. So appreciative. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Turner. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank,
1: thank you so much, everyone.
0: It was, it was such a privilege
1: to, to meet you all, and it's just fantastic. I wish we could now go to a pub or, and have a beer. <laughs>
0: Thanks for digging into these topics with us today. We hope you got some valuable insights from the episode. Please share your comments, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Security Sandbox is produced by Relativity. Our theme music was created by Monarch. Find us wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit relativity.com for more episodes.